Uh, <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 3. Um, I'm going to break with how I normally do things once again. Uh, I'm going to um, pray for us, and then we're going to read a portion of this, and then we'll, we'll start the sermon. We are going to need the Lord's help in understanding this passage of Scripture this morning. Uh, so let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in ways in which we can understand. Father, we thank you for giving us your son, Jesus Christ, who is your final revelation of yourself to us, so that in him we can know you perfectly and completely. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that illuminates our hearts and minds that shows us your glory and causes us to be your people. And we thank you for loving us, for caring for us, and for giving us life by your word. Father, by the work of the Spirit this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand this difficult passage of Scripture. We thank you, we thank you that you have given us even this, uh, this word this morning. Uh, but we pray that you would apply it to our hearts, that we would see the glory of your Son, even as you're revealed in this passage, and that you would help us pay attention, uh, even as uh, there are so many things around us that are distracting us from your word. Father, again, we thank you for loving us in your Son. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 3, starting at verse 1. If you have your Bibles, I highly recommend you follow along. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose with his brothers, the, high, the, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanel. And next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, the son of Emri, built. The son of Hanassah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hekaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Bechariah, the son of Meshelizabal, repaired. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Banna, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Jodoida, the son of Peshiah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yanasa. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Marathonite, the men of Gibeon, and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Haniah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem. As far as the broad wall, next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haraf, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Malachijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pathiaf, Moab, repaired another section to the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Haloesh, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Do you see now why I needed to pray to ask for the Lord's help in reading this passage? Uh, turn, and, uh, turn to verse 28 real quick. I'm going to finish reading uh, through the end of the chapter of verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok the son of Emmer repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, 
the keeper of the east gate repaired. After him, Haniah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hunun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshaluam, the son of Bechariah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malachijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the the, the muster gate into the upper chamber of the corner and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired the grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our Lord stands forever what is the point of a passage of scripture like this um, I actually have two different sections of the sermon this morning, and before we get into the specifics of this passage, I want to very briefly talk about the big picture. Um, as a church, you may not even know this, you may have never heard this before, but as a church, there's one thing in particular that marks us out from a lot of the other Christian churches, and that is this, that we believe in what's called plenary verbal inspiration. Plenary verbal inspiration. It, it kind of defines who we are as a church. What is plenary verbal inspiration? It's essentially this. Plenary means full. That we believe that all of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is the authoritative word of God. We don't get to pick and choose the pieces that we like or the pieces that make us comfortable or the pieces that make us feel good. But all of it is the word of God. And verbal, obviously, it comes in, uh, in word form. Okay, So the word of God is the means by which we know who God is. And then inspiration, of course, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that talks about the means in which God inspired the writing of uh, his word. Um, and if we were to go around the room, even though you've probably never heard of plenary verbal inspiration, if you would articulate what you think about the word of God, you probably would articulate that view of the Bible. Um, now, the problem is, as Protestant evangelicals, and, and I'll call us historic fundamentalists. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. I'll explain it to you at some other point. Just ask me. Uh, but, but we believe in verbal plenary inspiration or plenary verbal inspiration. But chapters like Nehemiah chapter 3 make it very difficult for us uh, because even though we say we believe that all of the, the word of God is inspired, um, you probably have never heard a sermon on Nehemiah chapter 3 because what in the world do you make of this chapter and all of these names and all of these people and the places that they built in a two-mile section of the wall of Jerusalem. Um, I actually asked Amy about that this morning. I said, can you read Nehemiah 3 and tell me how to apply this to the people here? And, and I began reading this to her, and it, I think it was verse 3, she said... Stop, you can't do this to people, okay? Uh, she, she said, no, 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 don't, don't. And I said, no, but this is, this is it. We, we have to do this. This is God's word. And so we believe in, in plenary verbal inspiration, and yet chapters like this make it hard for us. So what we need to do is understand how Nehemiah 3 fits into the, the big picture of all of the Bible, and I think that helps us. Um, understand why this chapter is in the Bible, why it is authoritative, and how it is helpful for us. So what's, what's the point? Well, Nehemiah finds itself in the Old Testament. But what's the book of Nehemiah about? What's the Old Testament about? What is the key to unlocking all of the scriptures? 
We have 66 books contained in one book. The word Bible means library. It's a library of 66 books all brought together. But we understand it to have one central message and one central story. But what is that central message? What is the central story? What is the Bible about? And what's the key to unlocking the message of the Bible? Well, there are a lot of answers that are given. A lot of people throughout history have given a variety of answers about what the Bible is about. Some people will tell you the Bible is ultimately about you and how you can get into heaven. And so with that understanding, they will read the Bible and say that you are the main figure and what you have to do is try to discern all the many ways that God wants, all the many things that God wants you to do in order for you to be good so that God will someday let you into heaven. And that means that you are the point of the Bible. Um, there are other ways to read the Bible, and that is it's, a, it's basically a way for you to know how to be happy in your life. It's a way for you uh, to live a, a good life and those sorts of things. But that ultimately is not, not about what the uh, Bible is about. And the reason why we know this is because Jesus himself tells us what the Bible is about. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. And also in verse 44, you don't have to turn there. Let me tell you what Luke 24, 27 says. And then you can, you can follow up later on today. You can read about Luke, what Jesus says in Luke 24, 27. But this is what he says. He says, um, on the road to Emmaus, two disciples, after Jesus has been resurrected, he, they don't know who he is. And Jesus is there with them and he's talking to them. And, um, and they're talking about the things that have happened in Jerusalem. Uh, but they don't know who Jesus is. Right? They're really talking about Jesus, but they don't understand that it's Jesus they're talking to. And it's supposed to be funny, and we don't really get the humor of it because we have a different sense of humor than Jewish people living 2,000 years ago. But it is a funny moment. Uh, and then in verse 27 of Luke 24, Jesus, it, Luke tells us this, And then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he began to explain in all of the scriptures about the things concerning himself. And then Luke 24, 44 says, And then with Moses, the, the prophets and the Psalms, Jesus explained in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself in the kingdom of God. And so what you understand there is that Jesus says that the Old Testament is about himself. And I'll just expand that and say that all of the Bible Old Testament, New Testament, is about Jesus Christ. He is the key to understanding what the, the message of the Scripture is all about. It is about Him. There's another way to say it, uh, and this is the negative way to say it. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about you. Now, we have a tendency, a sinful tendency, and I would say this is the... The, the sin that kind of marks us as sinful human beings, and that is to replace ourself with God. That's what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3. They said, we want to take the place of God. And so what we tend to do as a sinful tendency as we read God's holy and inspired word is we take Jesus out of the equation and we put ourselves in it. And we say, we are the hero of the story of the Bible. That all of it from Genesis to Revelation is really about us. But the Bible is not about you. It is the glorious story of God loving a people and coming to live among a people to take their sin on himself, 
to go to the cross, to die for their sin, and then give them his righteousness, his goodness, to be resurrected on the third day, to live into eternity, to rule and to reign. Jesus is the point of the Bible. It is about him. So what difference does it make? Well, this is the, this is the difference of biblical Christianity because all other religions... And all false teachings that come out of biblical Christianity that misunderstand the point of the Bible would say that, no, it's about you and what you can do. And all other philosophies and all other religions say that, no, you have to earn your salvation. Only biblical Christianity says you are not the point. Stop trying and start putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That's where we find ourselves in Nehemiah Nehemiah chapter 3. It's... It's a complicated story. It's a complicated section of the Bible. And and Nehemiah itself, it's hard to maybe relate to how Nehemiah is about Jesus Christ. Um, But let me explain this to you, and this might help you in understanding Nehemiah. Although the Bible is not about you, it is written for you. It's not about you, but it is written for you. God in his grace and mercy has given you the means by which you can know him and have a relationship with him. You're not the center of the story, but it has been given to you so that you can know about God. God gave you this book to know him, to have a relationship with him, and to live with him forever. And this book, in Nehemiah, fits into this, it is God's means of teaching you more and more about him and about Jesus Christ. And and so I'll explain Nehemiah in this way. The book of Nehemiah, it's kind of like you go to a big meal and the first thing they bring out to you is an appetizer, right? You have an appetizer, something to prepare your palate to get ready for the full course. And Nehemiah, in, in many ways, functions in that way. It's a little taste of the goodness that's to come. Now, if you stop reading the story in Nehemiah, you miss the bigger picture of the Messiah coming. But Nehemiah is about one man getting a group of people together to build the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. And that's the story of Jesus. One man coming to save a people, to build the kingdom of God. And, and Nehemiah is a, is a foretaste. It's, it's a small taste of the coming good news of Jesus Christ. And, and, and it's a foreshadowing. And, and as great as Nehemiah is, you need to keep on going in the story. Because if you stop, you miss the full meal of Jesus Christ. So that's what I want you to see. That's the big picture. That's how Nehemiah fits into the big picture. It's pointing you ahead. It's a taste, a small taste of the coming glory of Jesus Christ in the, in the, in the, um, in the full work that he is going to do. So what do we make of Nehemiah chapter 3? This, this long chapter, 32 verses of name after name, names that are hard to pronounce. That would be a great um, uh, party game is to just you know, pull it out and try to read, read the, the, the names here and then laugh as you mess up the name. So, um, so what do we make of this? Well, I want to look at this passage in, in two ways. And I want you to see, first of all, that the people that God uses to do the work. So the people of the work. And then secondly, we're going to look at the place where they work. So first of all, the people that God used to do this work. What are the means that God uses to build his kingdom? I think that will help us make sense of Nehemiah chapter 3. Um, notice that in this chapter, and we didn't read a good portion of it, but notice that there's no mention of the Messiah. 
there's only one mention of God, and it's and God is secondary in that mention in verse five. Um, so what do we make of this? Since there's not really a mention of God or the Messiah, there's not really a lot of deep theology that's mentioned. It's just names and places. Well, what this chapter does for us is it highlights the means that God uses to build his kingdom. The story of the Bible, once again, it it tells us that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, that there are no limits to his person and who he is and what he can do. God can do it all. But what's shocking, at least it is to me, as you read through the Bible, is that God does not prefer to use supernatural means to do his work. God does not prefer supernatural means to do his work. He could do whatever he wanted to do. Genesis Genesis chapter 1, all God does is says words, and those things that God says just appear He doesn't need anything natural to do any of the stuff he wants to do. But but as you read through the Old Testament and even the New Testament, very rarely do you see God doing something through supernatural means. And you're going to say, but wait a second. Isn't the Bible full of miracles? Yes. But what's interesting about those miracles and the miraculous and supernatural things that happen is they are always connected to a person. And I'll give you an example. I'll use Noah as an example. Okay, uh, Genesis chapters 6 through 9. Very famous, of course, you know about the great flood and all the things that are happening. Uh, it begins this way, that men began to fill the earth and the daughters of men uh, were, were uh, in, you know, somehow or another in marriage or something with the sons of God. And they start having other men and then wickedness spreads over the earth so that God says he looks at the heart of mankind and this is his pronouncement every intention of every thought of the heart of mankind is only evil continually that's God's judgment about mankind and what mankind is like and he says because of that I'm going to wipe out the the earth and so you think God is is pronouncing a judgment and he says I'm going to wipe them out God could Just speak and all of them would be dead, but he doesn't do that. The next thing you read after you read about the wickedness of mankind is, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So God says, man is wicked, I'm going to wipe him out, but there's Noah. And what he does is he calls Noah and he says, Noah, I want you to build a boat. (laughs) Noah says, okay, whatever, I'll do that. And he says, and in 120 years, it's going to start raining, right? Can you imagine in 120 years. So for 120 years, we're told that Noah builds the ark. And he slowly kind of gets his sons together and they begin to build the ark. And, and in a very few verses, you get all of this information about the building of the ark. But while Noah was doing that, and we t- were told in Hebrew that Hebrews that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, that he also was proclaiming the judgment of God. He was preaching to the people around them, but they didn't listen. And then the flood happened. Right, 120 years, Noah builds. You see, the supernatural only comes after God uses natural means to proclaim his word. Um, Now, you flash forward a few thousand years to Nehemiah, and now God calls Nehemiah not to build an ark, but to build a city. And he says, Nehemiah, get people together and build a city, but here are the names of the people they're going to build. It started out with Noah and his sons, his three sons and their daughters. But here you have 
Nehemiah, and more and more people of God building a city. God delights to use natural means to bring about his kingdom on earth. And what do these people do? Let, let me say it this way. What is their occupation? Look in verses uh, 1 and 2. Um, Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. I'll stop there. So the, the work starts because those in professional ministry begin to do the work of building the city. And it's understandable. This is God's ordained uh, God's ordaining the building and the ministry uh, of this city, uh, his dwelling place. And so it's an understandable thing that those in professional ministry do the work of building. But very rarely in this chapter do you see the priest mentioned. You come back to it at the end of the chapter. But it's only a small portion of people doing the work that are in professional ministry. Look up at verse 8. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Hariah. Goldsmiths repaired. What are the, who are the goldsmiths? Well, they're the smiths of gold. What did they do? They, they worked in... Uh, they actually, later on uh, in history, they became the bankers because gold was such a valuable thing that they held on to the gold, and so they were the ones that were responsible for keeping track of the money. So they, the reason why we have banks is because we had goldsmiths, but... You kind of get the idea that goldsmiths, were, they were involved in the intricate detail work and, and, and the lavish work of the things that were happening. Well, um, here they are doing non-detailed work. Picture for a moment an accountant picking up to go and do the work of building a wall or building a house. That's the idea that you get. So you get priest and you have goldsmith. Who else do you have? Right after that, in verse 8, you're told that perfumers repaired. Perfumers were probably, before the advent of running water, the most important people that existed. Okay? They had a very important job of making sure you could stand close to someone. Okay? Um, they, they did the work of extracting out of plants and things all of the, the, the stuff that smelled good so that you could make things that otherwise would smell terrible smell better. Picture this, that God calls perfumers, the makers of Chanel Number no. 5, to the work of hard labor of building this wall. Right? And it doesn't stop there. You're told that it's actually rulers that, that pick up hammers and nails and wood to begin the work of building. Rulers, people in politics, governors, mayors, people in town councils, Picking up to go about the work of building the wall. You also see in this that you have very wealthy people, rulers, and then also people that are very poor working side by side to do the work of building. Uh, when it comes to the work of building the wall, that there, there is no stratification. Wealthy and poor are working together side by side. And you also, and this is exciting, at the end of verse 12, I was listening to a man uh, who was teaching at a woman's conference, Nehemiah chapter 3, a woman's conference. He, you know, he was paid a few thousand dollars to go and preach, and he preached on Nehemiah 3. That's awesome. And, and when he was reading this, the women just kept on laughing because he was messing up the words. And then he got to verse 12. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Haloesh, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. In a world where daughters were relegated to second-class citizens, they were supposed to sit back and not do anything, women stepped up to do the work of building the, the city walls. 
you get a picture here of what I mentioned earlier, the priesthood of all believers. This is a foreshadowing of the work of the church of Jesus Christ. God is using us to build his church and his kingdom. Let me, let me say that again. God is using us to build his church and his kingdom. Let me say it another way. God is building you to build his church and his kingdom. God doesn't go to the best and the brightest. On Friday, we watched the inauguration. Some of you were able to watch that and see that. And you think, wow, if only maybe God can use that man to do that work. God told delights to use people like you and me far more than he delights to use people in power to accomplish his goals. Regular Joes, regular Janes, regular people working together side by side. And that's another thing that comes out, that they work side by side. They're not just rogue guys doing it on their own, just out there building things. No, they're working side by side with other people to make sure the work gets done. It's an amazing picture of the church of Jesus Christ. Men and women, rich and poor, those in high class, those in lower class, all working together with one vision and one goal to build the church of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing that God is doing, and he's doing it through y'all. Now there's a warning at this point. Look in verse 5. The next to them, the Tekoites, repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. There's a warning involved here. Tekoa is a city about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. It's pretty close, relatively speaking. And the nobles of that city saw all of the other men and all of the people working and the women working, and they said, you know what, we're not going to do that work. It's too, it's too good for us. I will not stoop my neck to do that work that they're doing. Now, these are men and nobles, so it could have been women as well, that, that had a portion with God's people. That simply by their birth, they had a, an important function in the midst of God's people. And they looked at it and they said, I don't want it. Look at chapter 2 at the very end of verse 20. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah spoke to those words to enemies of God. And here the Tekoite uh, nobles are saying, we don't want to be counted among the number of God's people. We would rather be counted among the enemies of God because they don't do the work. What's going to be said about you and the work that you do? You know, 20 years from now, some of you will be almost completely forgotten. Some of us, it's going to take a little bit longer. Mills, it'll take a little bit longer for you. Um, 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. Will anybody remember any of the work that you do? We are a few thousand years removed from the names of the people that are mentioned here in Nehemiah. And we read their names as hard as they were for us to read. Their work is still remembered because they were working for the kingdom of God. 
if you are working to build your kingdom, it's not going to matter. A few years, it's going to be gone. If you're working to build the kingdom of God, your work extends into eternity. Who are you working for? Do you think it's too, it's too much for you to go sit in the nursery and tend to the children? Maggie's back there now. Pray for Maggie. She's got a lot of them. Is it too much for you to, to stoop and help out around the church when things need to be done? We have work that needs to be done. Is it too good for you? It shouldn't be. Uh, secondly, very quickly, understand the place that they worked. The place that they worked. Um, I had a seminary professor who, uh, he was a, a professor of practical theology uh, that taught us that we need to think about life as a garden. And he says, look, all of us have been given a garden by God. God has given us a garden to tend to. Some of us have large gardens. Some of us have large gardens with various different gardens. We have fruit gardens and vegetable gardens and and you know, uh, gardens with roses and flowers and gardens that just are nice to look at. And some of us have all of these different kinds of gardens. Some of us have a four-by-four four plot of land that we struggle to keep up, right? We've been given different gar- gardens according to different abilities that God has also given us, right? Um, he says, look, think of your life as a garden. All you've been given is your garden. Tend to it. Don't worry about the other guy's garden. Right? I have a friend who is five years younger than me from seminary that is the pastor of a church of 1,500 people. I don't want his garden. <laughs> I like this garden. This is nice, okay? Um, but y'all are part of my garden. My family, my, my home life, it's part of my garden. And my job is to tend to my garden. Well, where did they begin to build the wall? Uh, We read this a little bit, but one of the things that comes out over this chapter over and over and over is that they started right across from where their home was. You know, they looked at the wall, they looked at where they lived, and they said, I'm going to build the place that is right here. They didn't say, I'm going to go build the wall on the other side, away from my house. No, they began at their home. Where should you build? Where should you tend? Well, you've been given a garden by God. Your garden begins at your home. Your work to build the kingdom of God begins at your, your home as well. Let me give you some practical application. Husbands and fathers, we need to be serving our family. Serving our families. Um, we like to think that because, you know, for whatever reason, that we're the leaders of our homes and we demand respect. I've been reading a uh, a guy named Simon Sinek, you've probably seen some things from him recently, but he talks about the nature of leadership. And he wrote a book called Leaders Eat Last. And he's not a Christian. He, he, isn't, he doesn't claim to be a Christian, but he's discovered this amazing principle that real leaders sacrifice for the people that they are leading. That leaders aren't browbeating and heavy-handed, but they're sacrificing. They're doing this. They're simply letting everyone else that they're in charge of eat before they eat. Simon Sinek has discovered biblical leadership. (laughs) I want to get him on the phone and say, hey, these wonderful principles you're making millions of dollars off of, they were in the Bible first, thousands of years ago. Dads, husbands, if you want to know why your children or your family doesn't respect you, just look at how your wife's plate of food is getting cold while she is serving 
the people around you and why your children look up to her while you're shoving food in your mouth, a guilty, while your wife is serving your family. Your wife is the leader of your home. How about you get up from the table and serve your family? Okay. If you want your children to respect you, your wife to respect you, eat last. Um, Biblical principle. Secondly, wives and mothers, you need to see how glorious your work for the kingdom of God truly is. It's, it's a mundane thing you do, you know, after washing your husband and your children's stinky underwear, uh, socks and all that. It's, it's not glorious. And yet, the king of heaven and earth is applauding you as you work for your family, serving them to build his kingdom. It's a glorious thing. You need to see that your activities are not going unnoticed. And children, um, children, right, you can make John Barley listen at this point. So you, Mark Ryan, this is for you too. Y'all need to begin to ask the question, how can I serve my family? What can I do to help around the house to not merely just let mom and dad do it all while you play video games or do whatever it is, but say, mom and dad, you work so hard for me. What can I give to you? That's how you begin at home to build the kingdom. Yes, Caleb, you. <laughs> Ask him, what can you do? It's, it's so simple. Now, some of us, you know, I, I want you all of you to start at home, but some of, some of you can branch out. Uh, at various times in this passage, other people, you see, they, they finished the work in front of their homes and then they found out another place they could go work. If your home is working the way that it should, well, there's other things that you can be doing and we have work that needs to be done. I'll be happy to point you in the direction of some of the work that needs to be done. Some of you have been given bigger gardens. Again, my garden is pretty small. Some of you, by God's grace, you have uh, more wealth, more time, more ability to do other things. You can tend to other places. Some of you can do more and you need to do more. Not for your sake, because of what Christ has done for you. He gave his life for you. And, by the way, to be a disciple of Christ is to take up your cross daily. That's what it means. Okay, so what's going to be said about you in 2,300 years? When somebody writes the book of this church, and maybe they will, will your name be in there? And will, will it say that this person or that person served the church for the sake of Christ, just like is written here in Nehemiah 3? We all want a legacy. We, we all do. We all want someone to think well of us after we're gone. What is going to be thought of you? And I want you in all this to remember Jesus. He laid the first stone. As a matter of fact, he is the first stone. We read that earlier. And you are laid on top of Christ, built upon him as your foundation. Remember Christ as we go about the work that we're called to do. Let's pray. Thank God for giving us.